not going to um, have a reading. Instead, I'm just going to give um, a short word of explanation before we sing another hymn. Uh, and we actually turn to the last part of our uh, study together uh, in Jeremiah. Um, I want just to explain the chart on the board. It was there last week, but I think it's the best way of revision and the best way of being able, before we move on to the last part of Jeremiah, of understanding um, everything. I'm so always glad when people ask questions because it generally shows, even if sometimes the people who ask them think they're a little dim, um, that uh, folk are intelligently, spiritually intelligently reacting um, to these times. And one quite bright person pointed out to me that there could not possibly be 70 years between 586 BC and 536 BC. There are only 50 years uh, between that. And they pointed out that I had been saying that Jeremiah was prophesying there would be 70 years captivity. How then, if the exile began in 586 BC and ended in 536 BC, which is only 50 years, how was Jeremiah correct? Now, here's one of the most thrilling and in some ways most fascinating aspects of the study of the Word of God. We don't always go into it because it has its dangers. Um, but here is something that may well um, encourage people. I've looked it all up very carefully. It's absolutely correct. If you uh, will cast your mind back to the studies we took um, much earlier on, you will remember that we um, pointed out to you that the exile, the captivity, took place in three stages. First, Nebuchadnezzar came up in the reign uh, of Jehoiakim and uh, besieged Jerusalem and took away something like, I think it is in the region of 30,000 people. That was the first stage of the captivity. A few years in 606 BC. In 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar again came against uh, Jerusalem, and this time he only took something like 10,000 people away, but he took Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, and the queen mother. Uh, they were taken with 10,000 of the professional classes, all the craftsmen, uh, craftsmen and um, other artisans, professional classes, were deported to, to uh, Babylon. Then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came up in the reign of Zedekiah, and um, you will remember he laid siege to Jerusalem for about two years, and finally he took Jerusalem, the rest of the people were deported, Zedekiah had his eyes put out, his seven sons were slain in front of his eyes, and the whole people were taken into um, uh, captivity to Babylon, and only the very poorest of the nation were left. Now, the word of God is exciting on this point. For the 70 years begins correctly with the first stage of the captivity in 606 BC. And if those of you who are mathematicians will work it out very swiftly, 606 BC to 536 BC is exactly 70 years. So the word of God is absolutely correct 
the seventy years began with the first stage of the captivity, whereas the actual exile, not captivity, but exile, was only fifty years in duration. Now, this is a little side line in study which we're not going to take up, but if there are any who are really interested, I'd be only too willingly in an after-time on Sunday or some other time, if necessary, perhaps Saturday, to explain it to you by drawing it out on the board. But there are four or five, I think I am right in saying, four or five, or at least three different periods of 70 years. And each period of 70 years, beginning at some point or another, ends with a big step forward. Now, it's very interesting. There is a 70 years that begins with the actual uh, taking of Zedekiah, his eyes being put out, and ends with the exact date of the first stone laid of the temple. So isn't it interesting that there are one or two, group, uh, one or two uh, 70 years, all beginning at different points, but all to do with the actual cap. Uh, captivity. This is the one, as far as we can see, that is the official 70 years of Jeremiah. Now, um, what does this little chart mean for any who were not here? Can you all see it? Otherwise you'll have to come and inspect it. Um, what does it really um, mean? Well, we have said that the book of Jeremiah is <coughs> uh, part uh, it, it, the key to the book of Jeremiah is that it is a preparatory ministry to recovery, a preparatory ministry for recovery. There are three such preparatory ministries uh, um, in the Old Testament, uh, at the end of the Old Testament. Um, obviously, you don't need preparatory ministries for recovery uh, at the beginning because there was nothing lost. You need it at the end when everything's been lost. These three ministries are Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They are the three successive ministries that are the great preparatory ministries of the Old Testament. And in the most interesting way, these three um, prophecies are all, as, it, as I called them last week, telescopic extensions, one of the other. It's as if you pull Ezekiel out of Jeremiah and then you pull Daniel out of Ezekiel. Each one takes the pre, the, his predecessor's ministry a step and a stage further. It's very interesting, for instance, how Ezekiel depends very much upon, upon Jeremiah. It is a, an amazing study in itself to see how much of Ezekiel there is uh, in Jeremiah. It is even more interesting to find how much of Daniel there is in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They are all bound up with each other and are all part of each other. They are, as it were, aspects of one ministry. It's important for us to understand that. Three preparatory ministries. And as I put them on the board here, you can see, here are the three extensions, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They issue in uh, the purpose of God fulfilled, the remnant returned. Now, you see this green line here. And that actually marks the last stage of the desolation of the land. When the temple was raised to the ground, the city was raised to the ground, the nation was dis dispersed everywhere uh, into the Babylonian Empire. Here, this brown line marks the dispersion. 
This here in brown marks the continuation of the dispersion right down to the days of the Lord Jesus. Even, of course, uh, today, the dispersions continue to this very day. Um, it began in the days of Jeremiah. That's when the dispersion began and has continued ever since. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel's ministry, though it must have been an encouragement to the Lord's people who remained in exile, was supremely directed to keeping alive in the midst of this dispersion, in the midst of the exile, far off from God's land, from God's city, from God's house, keeping alive a little group, keeping them alive to the purpose of God. And though every, all the others were becoming conditioned to Babylon, uh, and related indeed to Babylon, and in actual, in actual fact becoming part of Babylon, they were actually becoming part of it. Their customs, their dress, their everything was beginning to be influenced by Babylon. They were even stopping speaking Hebrew. They were beginning to, to speak um, another tongue. It was all taking place in the exile. These three ministries, this great ministry, shall we call it one great ministry with three aspects, was um, its great objective was keeping alive a little pure seed, a little remnant uh, that in the end would go back to the land. Of course, the very great majority, as you well know, became prosperous in business. Indeed, most of Babylonian business, uh, it's a fact in history, uh, went into Jewish hands. And so did business all over the empire, wherever they went, if they went to Alexandria, if they went where, whatever parts they went, the business of the countries came into Jewish hands. And they became prosperous, happy, they had their synagogues, they had their law, they intermarried amongst themselves, all was happy. But these three kept alive a spirit of holy discontent, of spiritual dissatisfaction. Uh, almost made that little group unhappy all the time, as if they just didn't belong to the Babylonian or Egyptian atmosphere. Um, they just, they just, their roots weren't there. And you know that wonderful little psalm that is attributed to Jeremiah, Psalm 137, that we read on Tuesday, that read it. It's attributed to Jeremiah by the Septuagint version. Oh, he says, if we should sing the songs of Zion, if we should forget Zion in a foreign land, let the Lord cut us off. Jesus, we can't do it. We, we, we've, we hang up our harps on the willows. Well, how could we sing songs to them when we're on, uh, in such an atmosphere? Well, these three men and their ministry produced, in the end, that little group that returned, left everything at tremendous cost, went back to the land and built the temple, built the city, and built the land. The interesting thing, as you will, I think, well know, it's been drummed into you so many times, the recovery was in three stages. The captivity was in three stages. The recovery was in three stages. And by building the temple, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the land, they, some centuries later, brought in the Christ. <coughs> I hope that is an explanation to you. Now, these three ministries existed on... Uh, shall we say, the wrong ground? That's the point. 
These three ministries, Daniel, of course, partly are uh, on, on, uh, on the right ground, as it were. He was still there within Jerusalem. But he went down, he died in Egypt. Never came back, as far as we know. Ezekiel died in captivity in Babylon. Well, not exactly in Babylon. I didn't put the map out tonight, but it was farther uh, north of Babylon. And Daniel died, as far as we know, uh, in um, Babylon. Uh, these three then, they exercise their ministry on what we would call the wrong ground. Uh, we would say today that they weren't on church ground. We would say that they were on just, uh, they were in Christian work. They were uh, on the ground of Christianity. That's all. Um, everywhere. Yet, you see, their objective was to produce a recovery of what the Lord really wanted. And the lesson from all this is a very simple one for us all here. We ought never to despise um, what is going on in Christian circles. A lot of it, a lot of it in Christian circles is just simply like the book of Esther, uh, an expression of God's sovereignty and grace alone. That's all. But there is also in Christian circles that ministry which is a truly preparatory ministry. And as we go through these three, we shall discover the different aspects of that ministry. And we ought to be very careful how we speak uh, of others in Christian circles, because there are those who have a real preparatory ministry. Um, they may not themselves always be able to explain it completely, but they have such a, a ministry. We ought to be careful, for instance, about the many of the Lord's people who are absolutely absorbed and burdened about revival. We would say, oh, well, really, is that quite the point? But you see, their great prayer is to bring something of the Lord back. They say there's terrible conditions exist today amongst the Lord's people. We want to see the Lord back in his place. Well, they may not see everything, you see, but there may be something there which is truly of the Lord and is a preparatory ministry, will betide those who exclusively cut off uh, everything and anything that doesn't conform to what they think is the way and, and do not realize that, the, that there are, uh, the Lord is far, far bigger than we recognize. And uh, here, even within the Word of God, we find some remarkable things, as you well know from our studies in the book of Esther, uh, what remarkable things we discovered there. Here, then, we are dealing now with the other aspect of the exile, the ministries that were living ministries, vital ministries, God-appointed and God-given ministries, absolutely, absolutely vital to the fulfillment of God's purpose. As I've often said, Esther, Mordecai were not vital to the purpose of God, strangely enough. If Esther had died, and the Jews had all died there, it wouldn't have really affected the purpose of God. Already there was a group back in the land. That's all that God wanted. It was God's grace. But if Jeremiah had never existed, or Ezekiel had never existed, or Daniel had never existed, the whole purpose of God would have been terribly, oh, I think almost 100, 100% affected, so that uh, it is, uh, I think it is probable to be, it is quite uh, reasonable to say that it would have been probable that there would have been no fulfilled purpose of God.
We said last week that the key to Jeremiah was the essential character that God requires in uh, a ministry preparatory to recovery. Not the actual recovery, but a ministry that is preparatory to recovery. Of course, the character God requires in a ministry preparatory to recovery is almost identical, if not identical, to the character God requires in those instrumental in the actual recovery. That Although the ministry preparatory to recovery is often, in it, if not always, on ex in exile conditions, it shares the same essential character as those in the land. There is a vast difference, of course, in the practical outworking. That's the great difference between these two ministries. In exile, you get a prayer ministry that's unrelated, in a sense. It's related to the purpose of God, but unrelated in other ways. In exile, you get a ministry of definition, an actual ministry of the word, of definition, of God's thought and purpose, but unrelated. It's in exile. Uh, you also get a ministry such as Jeremiah. The function of Jeremiah was the, to reveal the essential character, and you can often get real character, which is part of God's purpose because it's a, uh, a war, produced by walking with him in testimony uh, in those conditions, real character. Often, I'm afraid to say it, far superior to that of those in, involved in actual recovery, but unrelated again. Uh, here, then, you have those three ministries. What is, what is Jeremiah's uh, key, key to Jeremiah? The essential character that God needs in such a ministry. Now, we will not go over anything more of last week, except that we are going to take the character which Jeremiah expresses. Now, if any of you have taken notes, I want you to forget uh, because it seems to me, as often happens, when we have to wait for a week, we, we discover the reason for waiting. Um, uh, all that I said last week, um, we're going to partly go, but from a completely different angle, because I feel that we have got uh, the point um, of this character, which we hadn't quite got last week. What kind of character is it that Jeremiah expresses? There are six to this character, which are expressed in Jeremiah himself. He is, of course, the abiding message. Uh, not his ministry. He is himself uh, the one uh, that is the message to us, more so than any other prophet. It is the man. The first aspect I have called utter devotion and single-mindedness. Utter devotion and single-mindedness. This is one of the, of the most obvious characteristics of Jeremiah. It is, it is expressed in his every act, even when he's, he's, as it were, having it out with the Lord. There's no question about the single-mindedness of Jeremiah. No one can question his single-mindedness. His devotion to the Lord and his almost excessive in the eyes of the world, devotion to the Lord, lead him into a lot of anguish, a lot of trouble, a lot of pain that he would not normally have to bear. But when, he, when he's asking the Lord and almost arguing with the Lord about it, there is never, ever a question of his devotion or single-mindedness. 
This, I think, is one of the most important things that we could see. How did Jeremiah really endure? And what is the kind of character that God must have in a ministry preparatory to recovery? Utter devotion and single-mindedness. A life, a human life, <clears throat> which is absolutely taken up with the Lord. It is absorbed by the Lord. Now that does not mean to the exclusion of ev everything else necessarily. But it means that that one finds everything else in the Lord. He, ha he, he has no desires to find anything outside of the Lord or apart from the Lord. He has everything inside the Lord. Now if the Lord says, you can't have so and so and so and so, he says, that's all right. If I can't have it in the Lord, I don't want it. That's what we mean by devotion and single-mindedness. The Lord is the heart. The Lord is the focal center. He, he, will ha he will receive everything that will come through the hands of the Lord to him. But he will accept nothing that he could have outside of the Lord. Now, if you will look at this, you will see that immediately it all falls into place. Of course, you need to read the whole book of Jeremiah to get a real idea of this of this aspect of his character. But if we look at chapter 1 and verse 9, <clears throat> you will see in the call of Jeremiah, the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I put my words in thy mouth. There was a complete surrender on the part of Jeremiah. Now, may I say this? There is no such thing as true devotion to the Lord if it is not a complete surrender. The Lord said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we know that we love the Lord? By walking in his ways. There's no such thing as devotion to the Lord without surrender. Surrender is the evidence of devotion to the Lord, and there can be no single-mindedness without surrender. When we surrender everything to the Lord, we've become single-minded. We haven't got anything else. We haven't got any other things that we want to uh, take hold of. Uh, we want it all through the Lord. There are many things that we naturally would desire, but uh, we have come to the place where we know what's best, and we know how it will come. A complete surrender. And the second thing you will find in chapter 15, <clears throat> there's a lot of turning up of Scripture this evening. Chapter 15... Verse 16, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy words were unto me a joy and the rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I sat not in the assembly of them that make merry, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand, for thou hast filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual, or my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou indeed be unto me as a deceitful brook? as waters that fail. Here we find <clears throat> two things. With complete surrender, we find an obedience to the Lord. This is something we mentioned last week. Oh, utter obedience to the Lord. What is devotion but obedience? How do you go on growing in love for the Lord? 
by being obedient. When people's love grows cold, it's always through disobedience. Generally, we can trace it back to some disobedience or an unwillingness to yield on some point. And our hearts grow cold toward the Lord. It can sometimes be a very small thing in our lives, but it's an amazing thing is when you get through on something, what is the first thing you always feel? When you've got through, you feel a new sense of love for the Lord. Whenever you get through on a point, you suddenly feel, oh, how I love the Lord. You must have all had that experience when you weren't yielding on something and all of a sudden you just yielded. It might be a very small thing, it might be a big thing. But the first thing you felt when you got through on it was how you loved the Lord. You found you could praise the Lord in a new way. You found that somehow it meant more to you. Here it is, obedience. Thy words were found, I did eat them. Sometimes we find the Lord's words, but we don't eat them. What marked out Jeremiah? He found the Lord's words and he ate them. Many people believe this is a reference to the finding of the law in the days of Josiah, in, in the filthy, disused temple which was being cleaned out. Suddenly they found up the, under the altar a, a roll of the law. And whereas there was a great reformation, uh, it didn't go very deep. Jeremiah says, Thy words were found, I did eat them. Bollinger and others believe that it, 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 Jeremiah was referring to the discovery of the law. And when it was read, it only went uh, skin deep in most people. But in Jeremiah, it went right into his heart. He took hold of that law and he read it and he read it and he read it. He digested it. He meditated upon it. He reflected upon it till it went right inside of him. What did it do to Jeremiah? It did something Jeremiah never did to the others. It caused a reformation in Josiah's day, but in Jeremiah, it went right down deep till he came into an understanding of the purpose of God and into an identification with the law. Now that's the point. Faithfulness in the cost. You know, we shall always be moaning about the cost. And of course, many of us do. We spend our days moaning and groaning about the cost of the Christian life. Oh, if we weren't the Lord, we could do so and so and so and so. Or if we didn't have to go the way of the cross, we would be able to do this, that and the other. And all that kind of talk, which is after all, when we boil it right down to the last analysis, only the evidence that our love isn't very much. We've grown cold. Our love's grown. The cost has become almighty and our love has become very small. But see, how did Jeremiah go through? Well, he feels it. Look at him. He says he couldn't sit anymore where he used to sit. He couldn't be as merry as he used to be. Um, he found that his, his, his company, his way, was all being changed and transformed by what was happening to him. And then he goes on to an incurable wound, something that would not be healed, something perpetual that was always there aggravating him, always causing him anguish and pain. Well, he says, what does all this mean? It's a cost. You can't take hold of the words of God in a world that is in the hands of the evil one, that lieth in the evil one, that is governed by hosts of wicked spirits and world rulers that are invisible of darkness. You can't take hold of the very words of God himself and eat them and digest them and then get away uh, with it. You will find that the whole current of things will go against you and you will find strange and explicable intangible forces set in motion to somehow exterminate you and your testimony in one way or another, either by frontal assault or by quiet, subtle seduction. But it will always be uh, the same, a conflict. There's a cost. 
utter devotion and single-mindedness. If you look at chapter 16 and verse 1, you will find this. The word of the Lord came also unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. you see what happened? He found the word of the Lord. He ate it. He digested it. And what was the result? A cost. It's not the same in every case. But here there was a cost involved in being faithful to the Lord. The Lord said to Jeremiah, in these days, you are to remain single. And you're not only to remain single, but you have no family. Now, this was a disgrace to a man. Uh, in, uh, under the old covenant, it was a disgrace, an absolute disgrace, not to be married, and furthermore, not to have a family. Because a family was called the blessing of the Lord. And one of the greatest blessings that a priest or prophet could bestow upon any man was to bless him that he might have children, that he might see his seed, and that he might see his seed's seed. He may see his own children, he may see his grandchildren. That was one of the greatest blessings that could be bestowed. A man who had a large family, uh, going right down to grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren, was considered to be extremely blessed of God. Uh, uh, in the days of the old covenant. But you see here, there was a tremendous cost involved for Jeremiah. He had to go away that was peculiar, that was in some way somewhat singular, because of his devotion to the Lord. Now I want to ask you something. What do you really think, then, could sustain a man and get him through all that we know was, was ahead of him in his life. There is only one thing, an undying love. You know, in one of Paul's great blessings with which he ends his uh, letter, I believe, to the Romans, he speaks of a love incorruptible. The Lord give you a love incorruptible. That is a love that doesn't decay, a love that hasn't got just ups and downs, a love that can't be somehow or other um, weaned away, quenched, compromised, incorruptible love. Jeremiah hardly mentions love. I have looked through the whole book of Jeremiah and I find that he never speaks of himself loving the Lord. Uh, he speaks of the Lord's love for him and for the others. Uh, he rarely mentions it, and yet it is so obvious by his whole relationship to the Lord and his attitude to the Lord that he has an, a deep, undying love uh, for the Lord. I mean, nothing, nothing would make a man so naturally averse to, our, to being unpopular and to being alone and to, being, uh, to having a rejected ministry from beginning to end Nothing else could have induced him to walk the way he had to walk. It was because of his love for the Lord. He obviously adored the Lord. That's not too strong a word to use. He adored the Lord. But I want to say something else. He adored the people of God. And this is one of the most beautiful characteristics uh, of Jeremiah. His was not a faithfulness out of duty. He did not pay the cost, pay the price, just because he felt he ought to and had to. He didn't, he wasn't just obedient in a slavish way. I believe that Jeremiah loved the Lord and he loved his people, but his, lo his love for the Lord was greater than his love for his people. Otherwise he would never have stuck it. Do you know, again and again, Jeremiah's torn between two loyalties. The terrible message he had to bring to the people he loved 
And whether in love to the Lord, uh, he must indeed bear that message. You can see it again and again. He keeps on going back to the Lord. Why? And in one place I will not say any more. It's too terrible. Even when it comes to the unsaved nations, Moab, Babylon, Philistia and others, you find there's almost a broken heartedness behind the words that are used. He is one of the few prophets that weeps over the unsaved. Uh, you find, for instance, Jonah uh, brings a message of judgment to the people of Nineveh and is most angry with the Lord when the Lord reverses it. Most angry, like many of us. Only too pleased to see the judgment of the Lord upon that wicked, gainsaying, contradicting, rebellious people. Um, and when the Lord saw that they put on sackcloth and ashes and repented himself of what he was going to do and, gave, and, and re expressed mercy toward them, uh, Jonah was exceedingly annoyed and angry. You know, he went out and he uh, got himself under a little good and uh, he sulked uh, before the Lord. Um, well, now you see, this is, Jeremiah is entirely different. It is a love. And one of the key, keys or one of the characteristics or hallmarks of this ministry preparatory to recovery is this devotion and single-mindedness. Mark you, it is the single-mindedness of love. Not of duty. Not just of responsibility. Not of fear, but the single-mindedness of love. I don't believe anything else would get a man through this kind of ministry. The, the, this ministry, prepara, this preparatory ministry, is in many ways one of the most difficult to bear. Uh, it is nearly always misunderstood, almost always alienated in the finish, almost always rejected by the majority. Uh, it is therefore an exceedingly difficult task. Indeed, nothing but such a love could get a person through. It is one, therefore, it is one of the hallmarks of uh, character. Jeremiah stands out as a man of love, a man of love for the Lord, a man of love for his people, for his brothers and his sisters, a man of love even for the unsaved nations that had so despitefully used the people of God in days gone by. I think we should therefore take real note of that characteristic of, of, of Jeremiah. I often question myself whether indeed it is in us such a spirit, such a devotion, such a single-mindedness uh, as this. It is the only thing, as I've said I believe a little while ago, the only thing I believe that in the last days is going to get us through uh, in the end is such a love for the Lord, for his people and for the world. A second characteristic that you will find about uh, Jeremiah is an inward sincerity and reality. Inward sincerity and reality, I might say a thing not always so obvious amongst the Lord's people. Um, sincerity and reality, I'm afraid, are certainly not um, counterparts of religion. Uh, and I'm afraid, too, that so often amongst those of us who are the Lord's, sincerity and reality are not always to be very easily found. Indeed, it is a tragedy that you will often, almost the people who are sincere and real amongst the people of God, stand out a mile. You know them. Uh, it, it is a tragedy. 
What do we mean by this sincerity and rea reality? What do we really mean? We mean that there is an inwrought work of the Holy Spirit. Now, look here. Let's be a little uh, uh, reasonable with each other for a moment or two. Let's just think this thing out together. Why are we often insincere? Why are we often unreal? I will tell you why. Because there is not a, a, a work inwrought by the Spirit of sufficient measure. Because of that, we are afraid. And because of our fear, we, we build a facade around the little that is of the Holy Spirit and extend it, as it were. Uh, we make it seem much bigger, uh, much fuller uh, than it really is. Many of us are like that. It is the basis of insincerity and reality amongst the people of God is a fear, generally speaking, of being found out. That's all. Fear of being found out uh, uh, for what you really are. So people put on uh, all kinds of attitudes and and uh, adopt certain phraseology and, and are all the time living in strain because they're frightened that someone's going to find out. Uh, someone's going to sort of lift the veil and, and see what really uh, is underneath. Well, what is the basis then of, an in, of, of sincerity in reality? An inwrought work of the Spirit. An inwrought work of the Spirit. And a refusal to be anything else than what you are in the Lord. What a wonderful word that was that Paul once said to the Romans about um, let every man think of himself uh, as he ought to think, soberly. But let him think of himself as he ought to think, according to the measure of the grace that God has given to him. Uh, in other words, just don't, don't get big ideas of yourself. If there's very little of the Lord, get down to that level. And, and walk according to that level. If there's a little more of the Lord, walk according to the level that there is of the Lord. Now here's a very interesting thing. If you look at Jeremiah 1 and verse 4 and 5, you will find a very interesting thing. The Lord said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I have appointed thee a prophet unto the nations. Now mark the words, I formed thee, I sanctified thee, I appointed thee. What does this mean? It is very comforting that in the work of the Holy Spirit, in those that are part of this preparatory ministry, it is all in the sovereignty of God. And again and again you will discover that long before they came to the Lord, long before they were actually apprehended in time, God was in charge of their circumstances, in charge of their history, in charge of their background. He formed them from the womb. They were set apart in his eyes, in his mind, from the day they were born. They were appointed. And what does this mean? What do these three phrases mean, really, when you take them in their context? They mean simply this, that whatever Jeremiah might have felt about his childhood or his background or his temperament or his constitution or all the forces that had come to play upon him when he was young, they were all within the sovereignty of God. And every part of them was, was part, as it were, of that which the Lord had used to form the man that Jeremiah was. Sometimes, you know, in preparatory ministry, we think the Lord has made a big mistake. 
If I had been choosing a man uh, for Jeremiah's task and day, I would have certainly chosen a very different man to Jeremiah. I think most of you would have done. We would have looked for a strong, rather silent, um, reserved, but exceedingly firm and almost hard man who we would have said as we conferred together in fellowship with each other, well, we've got to find a brother who can get through. And it's no good giving it to so-and-so, or so-and-so, or so-and-so. We, we need someone who's tough. We need someone, or we would say, I know I would have said to them in my rather colloquial way, I would have said to them, he'll need the skin of a rhinoceros to get through uh, uh, the ministry he's got to get through, the times he's got to get through. He's got to have a tough skin. I, I, I would have said, I don't think he ought to be too sensitive because um, he'll never get through. Oh, I, I'm sure he would have chosen a very different man to the man God chose. God chose Jeremiah, a man so soft that he's called the most feminine prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, a man so unbelievably sensitive that the slightest thing went right to his heart. Well, there we are, formed, developed, appointed in God's sovereignty, everything in the hands of God. He had to be the answer of God within himself. We won't look up those scriptures, we looked them up last week, but you remember them all. The Lord put forth his hand and he touched his mouth and he said, Behold, I put my words in thy mouth. Something was inside of Jeremiah. He wasn't just going to be a tape a recording machine that could play back something. Something had been done inside of him by the hand of God, and he was going to speak out of it. The Lord touched his mouth. So I put my, my words inside. And then if you go on, you find all kinds of things. You, we remember we looked at them last week. Jeremiah was a priest and a prophet. In the days when the whole priesthood was corrupt, the whole, all the prophets were false, Jeremiah stands out as priest and prophet, in himself the answer to both. He was what God intended the priest to be, and what God intended the prophet to be. He was the answer of God. God could say, look at Jeremiah, now that's what I wanted. That's what you should have been. That is your condemnation. Then again, you know all these other strange things about um, him going and buying a, a linen waist cloth and burying it in the village that has the same Hebrew name as the river Euphrates and then going back there a little later and digging it out and finding it was all soiled and no good and then the Lord saying now I've got a message you go and take this soiled cloth and show the people uh, I've got something to say about this and then again he says go down to the potter's house he went down to the potter's house and he said do you see what you look you see what's happening he said yes he sat down and he saw the potter making a vessel and then he saw suddenly a lump appeared as the potter was fashioning the clay a, a hard lump suddenly appeared it was mild and then he saw the potter take the whole thing smash it down on the on the board as it were and then take the whole lump the same lump again and start all over again and then the lord said you see what's happened the vessel was marred in the potter's hand. So is Israel, marred in mine. But I will make a new vessel of the same lump. Then he was told, buy one of these vessels. He bought it. He went out. He was told to take the elders of the, of the priests and the elders of Jerusalem down to the valley of Hinnom. And he was told there to smash it in front of them. And then he was to say, the Lord has smashed Israel like this great smash. And of course there are many other instances if you look. 
There's the other time when Jeremiah went round evidently for some months with a great big wooden yoke on his neck. Not a very comfortable thing uh, to live with. Um, and you will find that in chapter 28. Or there was the other time, the most wonderful period really of Jeremiah's life as far as the Lord was concerned. I'm sure in the finish we shall discover the most precious to the Lord. When he was in prison in the, most, in the innermost dungeon, uh, in filth, and slime and with nothing else but vermin's company uh, he with the whole city besieged uh, battering rams being used against the walls the people dying people were eating their own children and everything else according to his own prophecies uh, they were being his prophecies were being fulfilled Jeremiah was told by the Lord in a dream in a vision Jeremiah your cousin's coming to you to visit you and uh, he's going to offer you um, his plot of ground at Anathoth. I suppose the cousin uh, thought, well, it's obvious to finish now. Let's see if we can make something out of Jeremiah. I don't know, but I can't understand what on earth he'd come to offer at that point of all times to, to offer for some money, uh, something to Jeremiah. But he came, and the Lord said, Jeremiah, you to buy that plot of ground. And Jeremiah said, well, what on earth are you asking me? All my life I've been... I've been I've been used of you to speak to these people, to tell them the whole land's going to be desolate, they're going to be deported, uh, the terrible judgments come to them, and now you tell me to, to waste money on, on buying a plot of land. The Lord said, you buy it, Jeremiah. Jeremiah bought it. Now, you mark, if you read the account, you will find the Lord never gave him an explanation until he bought it. When it was all signed and settled, then the Lord said to him a wonderful thing. He said, Jeremiah, You've bought a plot of ground at Anathoth because I told you to. Now I'm going to tell you this, Jeremiah. There's going to come a day when all Israel, when Israel will once again be repeopled, when this city will be rebuilt, and when deeds of purchase will once again be drawn up and witnessed and signed and sealed. So you see, what was the meaning of all these symbolic acts? As if the Lord was wanting little charades to be acted out. What is really the idea behind it? The principle is this. The Lord has got to make the prophet himself the answer. The man himself has got to be identified with his message. He can't just stand quietly and just talk. He's got to, as it were, be in the thing. He's got to himself be the symbol of God. He has himself to be acting the thing out. Do you understand? As if God is himself in Jeremiah acting it all out to the people, expressing it to the people. Jeremiah had got to have this inward work in himself of the Holy Spirit that made him the answer. Now, in any preparatory ministry, you will find that. You take a woman like Mrs. Penlowish. Some of you have read her life story. I believe she was in such a preparatory ministry. No matter what, I, what anyone else thinks, I, I, I believe that myself, and I think that if you ask the Holy Spirit, he may well show you the same. And what will you learn from the life story of Mrs. Pendleton? You will find this, that she was absolutely true to the ministry that came out of her. That again and again and again, her life was subjected to the most unbelievable assaults. What? Why? To make her and her ministry, her function, absolutely identical. She was herself the answer. Some of you know the wonderful story of Dr. F.B. Meyer, whatever you, you might feel about Dr. F.B. Well, if you read his life story, his biography, 
You will find that behind it all there was something all the time. Oh, such an agony in the life of Dr. F. P. Meyer. Few people really knew about it. Which was producing the ministry and making absolutely real in himself what he was saying. And that is true of so many others. It doesn't matter where you go. The answer is the same. Sincerity and reality. When God does a work inside of us, and we are prepared to be absolutely real, God can do something with us. It is when we want to be something that we're not, or try to be bigger than we are, or more spiritual than we really are, that we get all the trouble. You see, what is, what is this question of absolute sincerity and reality? If you look at Jeremiah, you will find in chapter 12, verse 1, that Jeremiah... Um, is absolutely real. He says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I contend with thee, yet would I reason the cause with thee. You see, he's, he's, uh, he's being real with the Lord. He's not being rude. He's not being irreverent. But he's being real with the Lord. He's having it out with the Lord. There's something he doesn't understand. He's having it out with the Lord. And if you read that, you will find what it is. Chapter 20 and verse 7, you will find something else. O Lord, Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am become a laughing stock. All the day, every one mocketh me. For as often as I speak, I cry out. I cry violence and destruction, because the word of the Lord is made a reproach unto me, and a derision all the day. And then verse 14. Listen to these words. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not, and let him hear a cry in the morning, and shouting at noontime, because he slew me not from the womb. And so my mother would have been my grave, and her womb always great. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb, to see labor and sorrow, that my day should be consumed with shame. Now, that's a side of Jeremiah that might be a little bit, uh, um, uh, may amaze some of us. Uh, here is a side of Jeremiah which we cannot excuse, um, we cannot condone, but we have got to explain as being the peerless sincerity and reality of this man. He was just not prepared uh, at all under any conditions whatsoever to, um, to be unreal, to be insincere in, uh, uh, in, in any way. Well, there we are. That is the basis then, another um, aspect of his character. Let's move on. A third aspect of his, of his character is sympathy. Sympathy. Um, this perhaps is an aspect that we do not always fully appreciate. Um, what do we mean by sympathy? I have said that one of the aspects of the character of Jeremiah is his sympathy. The Lord chose someone whom he knew would be safe with the message he brought. No man was called upon to bring a message of such unbelievable difficulty 
and hardness as Jeremiah. He was told to bring a message of un, unrelieved gloom, really. Uh, not like Isaiah, who very much of his ministry was taken up with the hopeful side. Jeremiah was, was brought very much the darker side, uh, the despairing side, the, the side of a terrible judgment that was at hand with seemingly hardly any let-up. Now, as I've said, we would have chosen a man that was harder more insensitive. The Lord chose a man who was most unbelievably sympathetic. Unbelievably sympathetic. As I have pointed out to you, when he, when he, even when he brings these terrible warnings of coming judgment to nations such as Moab and Babylon, he, he can hardly uh, hold in his tears. Uh, for them. This was the sympathy of the man. Now this marks him out more than many prophets. Uh, he, he did not relish the task that was his of judgment. There were some people of course who liked judgment uh, for judgment's sake I'm afraid. They rather relish uh, the sort of heavy-handed uh, coming judgment uh, of God upon everyone. But the Lord here took a man who was um, utterly sympathetic. You look at some of the scriptures very quickly. Jeremiah 3, verse 24 and 25. I believe we did actually mention these in a, in a slightly different relationship last week. Chapter 3, 24 and 25. Now, I'm going to accentuate uh, some words to give you an idea. But the shameful thing hath devoured the labour of our fathers from our youth, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame, and let our confusion cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Now, we would have said immediately, but Jeremiah has obeyed the voice of the Lord. He says, we have not. It is identification with the need. Jeremiah never stood apart from, his pe from the people of God. He always identified himself with them. One moment, he was the, the, the uh, trumpet call of God, as it were, warning them. You, 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 you've done this. You've done the other. This is what's going to happen to you because you have um, gone away from the Lord, because you have um, played the harlot, and so on. Then, as soon as it turns to prayer, it is we, our, us. Now, isn't that most interesting? In his ministry, it is I and you, God and you. It's all there, them, theirs, they. But when it comes to prayer, it is we, ours, us. Look at chapter 10, 23 and 24 again. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. O Lord, correct me, but in measure. Not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Pour out thy wrath upon the nations that know thee not, 
and upon the families that call not on thy, on thy name. For they have devoured Jacob, yea, they have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. You mark that, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to, the, to nothing. O Lord, correct me, but in measure. Then chapter 14, verse 7. Though our iniquities testify against us, work thou for thy name's sake, O Lord. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against thee, O thou hope of Israel, the saviour thereof in the time of trouble. Why shouldest thou be as a sojourner in the land, and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be as a man affrighted, as a mighty man that cannot save? Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we are called by thy name. Leave us not. You see, really, when we begin to take this in, it should change um, our attitude uh, in prayer. Look at verse 19. Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hath thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us, and there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of healing, and behold, dismay. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. Now that's intercession. Even all these centuries later, when you read it, that's intercession. It's got, it's got a ring about it. It's got a quality about it. It's got something that's moving within it. It is real intercession. Now I want to say this, that there can be no real intercession without sympathy. When people start to talk of either the unsaved or of the, of the Lord's people always in a, a superior, a condescending way, um, I don't believe that's intercession at all. Intercession is when we get in between. Intercession is when we, as it were, one point, represent God before them. And then when we represent them before God. That is the secret of, of what I have called sympathy as a hallmark of Jeremiah's character. You know, there were times when he was absolutely representing the Lord before that rebellious, backsliding people. But do you know there's another lovely aspect to Jeremiah? There were times when he went before the Lord to represent a backsliding, rebellious people before the Lord. And never once did he say, Now, Lord, don't listen. Uh, I'm nothing to do with this, Lord. Uh, would you do something for them, Lord? Their iniquities, their sins, oh, they're followed in the ways of their fathers. Uh, I'm not a part of them, Lord. I wouldn't get involved with them for a moment, Lord. I'm absolutely faithful to thee. But I must pray for them. That, that's not intercession. Jeremiah is one of the most real intercessors in Scripture. It's interesting that the Lord links with him two names, Moses and Samuel. When Jeremiah stands before him as if Samuel is the third and greatest intercessor in Scripture. He says, if, if Jeremiah, if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, I would not listen. So don't pray anymore. Well, I leave that with you. Sympathy, sympathy for the people of God. I think times time the people of God aggravate us beyond description. Uh, 
by the blindness, the ignorance, the superficiality, the, the rebellion and murmuring that there is. Oh, what a tendency, what a temptation there is to cut ourselves off in, in intercession from them and speak of them always as them and they and there. Uh, but the Lord doesn't do that. Not in any of these ministries will you find that. It, 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 in prayer, it's always we. Always. Then I, I want to mention another um, character, aspect of his character. I have called it clear-sighted perception. Clear-sighted perception. Or perceptiveness, perhaps, is even better. Um, his was a character that was unbelievably perceptive. A spiritual character, I'm talking about, not a natural character. Uh, unbelievably perceptive. Now, here there's something we ought to note. In his sympathy, how easily Jeremiah could have been led astray. How easily sentiment could have got the upper hand with a man that was naturally soft and sympathetic. But you see, Jeremiah was given a vision that was as sharp as a knife. It saw right through to the heart. Even in the Reformation of Josiah's day, he saw through it as a young man. He saw that it didn't go deep enough. Uh, many others were, 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 didn't see that deeply, uh, but Jeremiah did. Discernment of perception is part of this preparatory ministry. Uh, it is the perception that is not critical, not malicious, but is a, a, a perception, a, a discernment that... Uh, is wholly given for one's relationship with the Lord. There's all the difference between discernment and perception used against people and discernment and perception used for people. I may see a sister who uh, talks to she just talks too much. She's a source of trouble because she talks too much. Others don't see it. I see it. I can use a perception the Lord has given me against that person. I can go around to others and say, I say, be careful, so-and-so. I go to someone and say, you want to be very, very careful. And so I use my perception against that person. I may even use my perception in a way that I don't have much to do with that person. Oh, I, I justify it by saying, uh, oh, it's quite right. You can't have much to do with a person who talks too much. Okay. That's perception and discernment used against a person. I might, on the other hand, use my perception and discernment for them. In every way possible, in prayer, in watching over them, seeking to heal the damage that talkative people always do. Seeking in another way to say to people when it happens, is yes, well, look, perhaps so-and-so uh, talks Forgive them. Don't act against them. Don't divide yourself from them. There's a vast difference between perception and discernment used for a person and 
and against a person. One is exclusive and wrongly discriminating. The other is forbearing, long-suffering, and edifying, building up. Jeremiah's perception and discernment had to be destructive, to be constructive. He saw through a thousand and one situations, but always with one end, to try and get the people through. Always. His job was to produce a remnant that would go back. How did he set about it? By saying nice things? By painting pretty pictures? No, by pulverizing all the things that they were trusting in. One by one they sank down into Jeremiah's life and ministry till the people were left with ruins. Then Jeremiah says to him, don't worry, it's all going into judgment, but, but another day is coming. His ministry was destructive to be constructive. If you look in um, chapter 1 and verse 10, you will find that there are four uh, words used of his ministry which are destructive and two words used which are constructive. He is told that he's to overthrow, pluck up, destroy, and so on, uh, and then to plant and to build up. His, therefore, we see straight away, there is a right kind of perception. We must not be woolly. It's not being critical, you know, to say, to point out only too clearly what is wrong. And certainly not critical when, when, when by our life and character and ministry we literally blow up dynamite things that are false. It is our responsibility to do so in order to be really faithful and constructive. Now you all know we want to build a tool shed over in the garden. But there happened to be there a very unsafe, evil, dirty building that was in danger of falling down and had a demolition order granted over it. In order to build something that was useful and which we greatly need, we've had to demolish right down to the foundations the existing thing. We had to be destructive to be constructive. I've been talking uh, with Bill about different things, all kinds of things, and two or three times in the past months we've talked about demolition. And one of the things I'm most surprised about, I was very surprised, for instance, at the amount of money you pay de demolition uh, contractors, you see, but I'm told that there's art in demolition. You need, you need to be more knowledgeable in demolition than in building, in the way things fall and the way to pull things down. And I think that is so in a ministry which has got to be destructive, to be constructive. You must not think that to be destructive is anyone. Anyone can be destructive. Yes, they can. Like bulls in china shops and wreck everything in a wrong way. There's a vastly different thing between demolishing something rightly and cleanly uh, and with the least fuss, efficiently, in order to get on with the job. Well, there we are. Here we've got it. It's clear-sighted perception. Fearlessness uh, when, it, when it's needed in the proclamation uh, of, of what he saw. And then I would like to point out, too, a capacity for suffering that is so obvious in Jeremiah's character. A capacity for suffering. Now, I don't mean by this um, a morbid um, uh, love for suffering. I don't mean that at all. <clears throat> I want to make it clear in this way. 
You will notice how sensitive Jeremiah is. Just look at a few scriptures, will you? Four and verse 19. My anguish, my anguish, I'm pained at my very heart. My heart is disquieted in me. I cannot hold my peace because thou hast heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm for war. And then in chapter 8 and verse 18. Oh, that I could comfort myself against sorrow. My heart is faint within me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people from a land that is very far off. And then verse, chapter 9, verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain, the daughter of my people. These are but just a few. We could go on to a very much greater number if you would like to put it down for your own reading. Chapter 10, verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Woe is me, is because of my hurt, my wound is grievous. And then in chapter 23 and verse 9, all these reveal a capacity for suffering. Can I put it this way? A sensitiveness. Undoubtedly, Jeremiah suffered more than many would because of his sensitiveness. He was made unbelievably sensitive. Because of his love for the Lord, he all the time knew how wounded the Lord was. Because of his love for the Lord's people, he all the time knew something of the anguish that was coming to them. Um, it's a capacity for suffering. You look through Jeremiah's life and you will find there is no man who knew so much of rejection and satanic antagonism as, as Jeremiah. Many times he was in prison, many times... Uh, he was ill-treated, humiliated. Apart from the many attempts on his life, he, they sought to murder Jeremiah two or three times in his life by one means or another. He was completely friendless and a forsaken man. Now, my point is this. What do I mean by a capacity for suffering? Jeremiah had the most uh, remarkable way of, of making his suffering creative. I don't know if you understand what I mean. Making his suffering creative. You see, there were many people who would have got bitter and reacted wrongly to all that he suffered. But instead, Jeremiah seemed to be a, had a capacity to take the suffering and to allow it to do a work in him that in its own... Um, time produced something in return. In other words, he made suffering creative. Paul did exactly the same. He looked upon all his sufferings as filling up the, uh, the uh, afflictions that were lacking uh, in Christ, in Christ's body, those uh, that were left to fill up. He again and again spoke of necessities and privations and imprisonments and sicknesses and journeyings and so on as something that the Lord could use to do something. He spoke of a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan, which somehow was making him weak, because in his weakness the Lord was able to develop and perfect strength. Now many of us, when we have these things come our way, not because we've caught them, but just simply because we're walking in faithfulness to the Lord, we become all turned in about them and all upset, and we hug them to ourselves and so on. 
we have not got that capacity for uh, creative suffering. Perhaps it's best to put it in this way. We, we do not know what it is to travel. To travel. Travel always issues in new life. And Jeremiah had a capacity for just making all his suffering creative. I think that's one of the most wonderful things uh, in the life uh, of, of Jeremiah. No man suffered. He has come down to this day to be a very symbol of suffering. And yet there was no man who was, did not allow the suffering to sour him and embitter him. But it just produced something in him. And it produced something for others. And that leads me to the last thing about his character, and that is perseverance and tenacity. Um, of course, we speak of the patience of Job, but we could just as well speak of the perseverance of Jeremiah. Um, he, his ministry lasted 46 years at least, and indeed he, he may, he, he, his ministry may have lasted longer. And in all those 46 years, there was hardly uh, uh, any appreciable time when his ministry was truly accepted. Perhaps in the first years of Josiah's, uh, um, in his first years of ministry in Josiah's reign, they were accepted. But that's all. The rest of his life, was, he was entirely unacceptable. Now, it doesn't matter where you look, you will find Jeremiah... It, um, come, his character comes out as a tenacious and persevering, spiritually persevering and tenacious character. You know, I'm most interested in the New Testament, the little word that we call patience, but which is um, always in the margin, in my version, put a steadfast uh, endurance. The word patience doesn't quite get it. it it's got too passive an atmosphere. Um, the word steadfast endurance that's positive, that's active, you see. This isn't just sort of a resigned sort of folding of the hands and uh, waiting for whatever is going to happen to happen. But this is a steadfast endurance. Whatever comes the way, we're going through, we're, going to, we're determined by the Spirit of God to endure. How does that happen? Well, very quickly, look in Jeremiah's life. Chapter 1 and verse 10 will give you the key straight away. It is a spiritual position that he held all the way through his life. I See, I have this day set thee over the nations. Now that's a spiritual position. How does any child of God persevere? By holding to their spiritual position in Christ. The moment we admit uh, an insinuation about our position in Christ, we're lost. The moment we say... Oh, the Lord's forsaken me. Oh, I'm not really saved. Oh dear, I, I feel the Lord's given me up. That moment is the moment when we lose our perseverance. We collapse inward. You must have all known it. The moment you admit a, tem a, a, a thought of the enemy along this line, you collapse inside. You just feel, what's good? No good. And then all things build up inside and more and more insinuations come in and your dossier starts to build up and uh, you're finished. It's a spiritual position. The Lord set Jeremiah over when he was still a teenager. Now mark it, when he was a teenager, a youth, the Lord set him over the nations. And from that day forward, Jeremiah never lost that position. Look at chapter 17, verse 8. 
Now, we never, we didn't even look at um, the outline um, that is in uh, Jeremiah. Uh, so on the other side of this board, I will turn it over. For those of you who wish to, you can, you can uh, take it down, and then you can read it in the light. It's a very simple outline indeed. It's only divided up into three, and they are all prophecies, literally divided up into prophecies before the fall of Jerusalem, prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem, and prophecies concerning the nations. There's an introduction, and there's a conclusion. But the most interesting thing of all is that the introduction begins with the call of Jeremiah. The conclusion in chapter 52 deals with the fulfillment of Jeremiah's ministry, written by uh, Baruch afterwards. But the heart of the book, chapter 30 to 33, when he was in prison, when he bought the plot of land, is the only three chapters that deal with the recovery. There's very little in the whole of the book that deals with the return except those three chapters, but they're the heart of the book. It is Jeremiah who is the message of the book, not his ministry so much as the man. He is the message. And so we learn from this book of Jeremiah that God takes hold of this kind of character, this kind when he would do something preparatory to recovery. In some situations and on some ground, God can take a Balaam and speak through him. He can even take an ass. There is a case in Scripture in the Old Testament when an ass actually spoke the word of God. God can do that on some ground, but I'm afraid he does it a lot uh, on some ground. Uh, he takes Balaams, he takes asses, and he speaks through all kinds of things to get his word over to the people of God. But when you've got something uh, that is to do with the recovery of that which is lost, God does never use a Balaam, and he never uses an ass. He always has to have a Jeremiah. And that is the message of the book of Jeremiah. If there's going to be a ministry preparatory to recovery, got to have a character that is like Jeremiah. The character of Jeremiah, it is essential. So then let us be very careful in our attitude to those who are in Christian circles, for this book has a message to us at the end of the New Testament age. Um, it is that we should be very careful not to have a superior or condescending attitude and approach to those who may be part of a preparatory ministry uh, to recovery. Let us be very careful. Let us seek the Lord in our approach to all the people of God. We may have a love for them all and may have a perception that sees uh, where people stand. And whilst it will not exclude itself and we can't be involved with a lot, uh, we, we can at least appreciate and understand the position of those who may be part of such a ministry preparatory to recovery. May the Lord help us in that. And now, Lord, we ask thee indeed just to take hold of all that has been said this evening, not to allow anything of real value to pass away, Lord, but to write in our hearts that which is of thyself. Together we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus.